Happy Resurrection Day. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and I'd like to read verses 13 through 35. This is the, the well-known account of the, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Holy Scripture says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God and it is for our good. Let's, let's pray. Father, uh, we, we give you thanks for the words that you gave us through Moses and all the prophets and through the apostles of our Lord and ultimately 
through your very own Son. And Father, I pray that you would nourish and strengthen our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two disheartened disciples meet a stranger on the road. Verses 13 to 24. It it was the day when Jesus rose from the dead. But the disciples did not yet realize that he had risen from the dead. And these two disciples in particular are taking a little trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they are discussing with each other the, the momentous events of the last few days. They're trying to make sense of everything. And while they're doing that, a, a stranger joins them on the way. Now we know that the stranger is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, they didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus himself drew near, verse 15, but for 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And really, this is, this is the problem that Jesus is, is ultimately going to address through the course of this passage. Earlier, early in the morning, the, the women went to the empty tomb, and they saw the empty tomb, and they heard the angelic proclamation, but they did not, or they don't know that they had seen the Lord, um, these, these two disciples, And then uh, Peter went to check things out, we're told in verse 12, uh, and Peter saw the linen cloths, but he didn't see the Lord. And uh, the, the two disciples call attention to this fact in verse 24, when they say that the women's report had been confirmed by some of the male disciples, but, but he, they did not see. And so, Jesus is there and he is going to minister to them and he begins by, like a wise master teacher, he begins by asking them questions. What what is this conversation that you are holding with each other? And when he asks that question, they are a bit stunned. I mean, they're already sad and now they stop still for a moment and they're stunned that someone is in the Jerusalem area who seems not to know what had happened over the last few days. Finally, one of the two disciples, the one named Cleopas, breaks the silence and says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Years ago, I heard a preacher call attention to the great irony of Cleopas's question, for the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus was the only one in the Jerusalem area who actually did understand what had happened the last few days. But he just asks, what things? What things are you, ta- what things are you talking about? And obviously the, 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 the answer comes at the be- in, in the middle there of verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. That's what, that's what the two disciples are trying to to sort out things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and their answer kind of unfolds in five parts. First, they highlight the greatness of Jesus in verse 19. He was a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. He, his, his preaching and 
teaching and his performing of miracles and healings gave evidence of the fact that he had God's favor. God was with him, and he was also well regarded by so many ordinary folk. And yet second, in verse 20, they, they call attention to the demise of Jesus, and this gets at the tension that they are experiencing. Uh, they say in verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So here is a, a mighty prophet, great teacher and healer, and he had raised our hopes and we had great expectations. And then, of all people, our leaders, our religious leaders, put him to a violent death. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? And then the third point they make is they call attention to their own shattered hope at the beginning of verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We, we had hoped that he was the one who would re, rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the glory of Israel to greatness on the world stage. But as is typically the case, a man's plans die with the man. But there's another complicating factor to their tension here. This brings us to the fourth the fourth part of their answer, they call attention to the women's report. The, 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 the women had gone to the, the tomb and they beheld an empty tomb and they had a vision of angels who announced to them that Jesus is alive. And then, fifthly, they, they had sent uh, some, of the, some of the male disciples to check things out and they confirmed the report. And so there's this testimony out there from the angels and from the women that Jesus is alive, but, but him they did not see. One wonders if, if uh, seeing him is the, the, the necessary thing that needs to happen because actually they have been seeing him for like the last 15 minutes, but they don't recognize him. Something more is needed. So, next, going to verses 25 to 31, the stranger, who we know is Jesus, but they don't, the stranger nurses these two disciples to health. Now, how does he do that? Well, he's already begun the nursing process by asking them questions and drawing out their 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 understanding and their thoughts. And the, the next thing that he does is he reproves them. This, this might come to us uh, as a surprise. Here are these sad-hearted, dispirited disciples whose hopes felt dashed because their Lord had been crucified and they're unable to connect all the dots and put it all together. And if, if they're just left to themselves, they're just going to keep going around in circles. They really need some help here from the Lord. And the Lord, he doesn't, he doesn't coddle them. He, he doesn't, 
say, you know, your, your, uh, your sadness and confusion is understandable. We're, we're, we are, in our sentimental age, we are far too quick to coddle people and sympathize with people when what people actually need is a clear word from the Lord. So, so Jesus begins by reproving them in verses 25 and 26, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The implication of what Jesus is saying is that if these two disciples had been wise, and what is wisdom but to believe the totality of what God says and to let the totality of what God says shape your outlook about everything that God says. If they had been wise and eager of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, then they would have understood that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer first before entering into his glory. And the reason they didn't understand that is because they had foolish, slow-to-believe hearts. Now, I want you to see something here that's really important because people get themselves into all kinds of problems when they go down this path that these two disciples went down, okay? The problem begins with a spiritual problem where there is foolishness and unbelief or slow to believe, a, a slow to believe disposition in the heart. That's a, that, that is a spiritual problem that represents an immature faith. That immature faith leads to bad theology. Good theology is believing and understanding the totality of what God has spoken through the prophets. That's good theology. Bad theology is every, anything short of that. Okay? Now, now, follow me here. Immature faith leads to bad theology, leads to the wrong expectations. We thought he was going to deliver us from the power of Rome. Death, that wasn't, that wasn't part of the storyline in their, in their faulty theology. So they had faulty expectations. And then when their faulty expectations were not met, what did that do? It shattered their hope. This is the path that people are going down all the time. Immature faith, unwillingness to believe what God has said, faulty expectations, shattered hope. And at that point, a lot of people just walk away. Shattered hope, they walk away from the Lord, they walk away from the scriptures, they walk away from the church. That, that didn't work for me. Jesus is going to be healing and building up their faith by teaching them proper theology from the scriptures. And that's what he does in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
it must have been a remarkable sermon as he took them on a tour of the Old Testament. Perhaps a sampling of some of the things he said would have included uh, that he, he is the, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who would bruise the serpent's head, but in the process his own heel would be bruised. He was the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the true Israel who had to sojourn in Egypt, for out of Egypt I have called my son. He is the Passover lamb whose blood had to be applied to the people in order to spare them from the judgment of death. He is the righteous sufferer in the Psalms as, as, as David's life foreshadowed the life of the Lord Jesus. And there's so much in the Psalms about the righteous sufferer getting into all kinds of trouble and being overwhelmed by the, by the entanglements of death. And yet, and yet the Psalms point forward to the fact that there will be a resurrection and glory on the other side of that death. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who is crushed for our iniquities and yet lives again to see the fruit of his anguish. He is like Jonah who had to descend into the depths for three days before he came forth with the word of salvation for the world. He is Yahweh pierced in the prophet Zechariah, and yet he is the shepherd struck by Yahweh, also in the prophet Zechariah. That's just a sampling of the kinds of things that the Lord might have walked these two disciples through. He wanted them to understand that it was according to script, according to the Father's plan all along, that he suffered first and only after that entered into his glory. Well, as Jesus was wrapping up his sermon to these two disciples, they were, they, they, they were on the doorsteps of their destination in Emmaus, it says in verse 28 that they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. <laughs> so, you know, it's wise. It's wise for a teacher to take leave of his students and see if they are eagerly desirous to tell them that, no, 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 come, come. Come here, stay with us longer. We want more. That's far better than crashing their party and then having them urge you to leave. But you see, as, as, they, were, as they were hearing this message, do you know what was happening in their hearts? They, they, they testified to it in verse 32 that as Jesus was opening the Scriptures to them, and they didn't know it was Jesus who was the one doing it, as Jesus was opening the scriptures to them, their hearts were burning within them. 
Their, their foolish and slow-to-believe hearts were coming alive and being ignited and lit up and made aglow with the truth of God's Word. Hope and joy and was, was being restored within them. They were, their, their vision was being corrected. And so, even though Jesus acted as, as if he was going to go farther, they wanted him to stay. Not only because it was practical being late in the day after a long journey to come in and show hospitality to their teacher, but they wanted more. And so as they, as they gathered in the house and came around the table in verse 30, Jesus assumed the role of host. It says in verse 30 that when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Does that ring a bell? If you, if you, uh, if you go back to Luke, the ninth chapter, verse 16, when, when, when Jesus multiplied the loaves for the 5,000, we're told in Luke 9, 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And then more recently, in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper, we're told in Luke 22, verse 19, that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Now, whether Cleopas, Cleopas wasn't one of the twelve, um, I'm assuming he wasn't one of the twelve, unless he's, a different name is being used, but if Cleopas and his, the other unnamed disciple may not have been uh, present at the inaugural Lord's Supper, though they may have heard about it, they may or may not have been present at the feeding of the 5,000. But whether they were present for those events or heard about them is really beside the point. What is the point is that Jesus likes to reveal himself at the table. Jesus likes to reveal himself as, 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 as one who is a plentiful provider, as, as, as the one who is giving himself as a sacrifice for the salvation of the people. We're told in the Gospel of John that he's the bread of life, the true bread of heaven, representing his body, who gave his body for the life of the world. And it is at this very moment, after the ministry of the word, and now at the ministry of the table and the blessing and the giving of bread, it's at this moment that their eyes are opened and they recognize that the one who had been walking with them on the road, the one who had been teaching them, the one who had broken bread and given it to them was none other than the Lord whom they loved. And if they had had their way, they probably would have lingered in the presence of the Lord all evening long. But that was not to be. The text reads as if no sooner did they recognize him that he vanished from their sight. I don't know if it was five seconds or 50 seconds. I don't know, but it, I don't think it was long. They recognized him. 
and he was gone. He, he was mysteriously present with them for a few hours on the road, teaching them and ministering to them, and now he was quickly and mysteriously absent from them. In 40 days, he's going to ascend into heaven, and they are not going to have physical access to him anymore. Preparation for that begins immediately. Finally, coming to verses 32 to 35, the renewed disciples return to Jerusalem. In verse 32, they reflect on the fact that their hearts were burning within them and being renewed and strengthened, and their whole disposition had changed. You know, when you're, when you're dejected and sad and depressed, you might just as well leave, leave the larger company like they had and just endure the quiet night by yourself. But, but, but that sadness had evaporated in the sunlight of divine grace, and now there was encouragement and hope and joy, and they had to return to their friends in Jerusalem. I would not be surprised if it took them two and a half hours to walk the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, I would not be surprised if it only took them 90 minutes to return because uplifted hearts quicken the pace and they wanted to reconnect with the apostles and with their fellow disciples in Jerusalem and that's exactly what they did in the middle of verse 33. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. And remarkably, it wasn't just the two disciples who had a word of testimony for the larger group. The larger group had a word of testimony for them because they were already testifying to the, to the truth of the resurrection, saying in verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, and then they told their story about how the Lord had showed up with them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so now there's, there's this fellowship of resurrection joy that the disciples are sharing in together. This sets the stage for the rest of their lives. Now, <clears throat> I want to walk through some application with you and the first thing I want to do is I want to try to help connect their heartache in the early part of the passage. I want to try to connect their heartache to our heartache, the kinds of heartache that we might experience. Obviously, there was something very unique, something very historically unique about their heartache as it was taking place in the very midst of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they were trying to sort it out and understand that. But even though their heartache was historically unique at a very unique time, there are points of connection in all heartache. And I, do, I just want to share a few of those things with you, just so you can, you can hopefully benefit from the Lord's ministry to us through this passage. Three points of connection. Number one... All heartache relates to sin and death. All of it. 
if you think about sin and its consequences, and if you think about death and everything that leads to it, there you will find connections to all of our heartache, suffering, and grief. If you don't believe me, just do a little thought experiment. Imagine that there was no sin in the equation. You've never sinned. No one ever has sinned against you. There's no effects of sin anywhere to be seen. There's no death and no risk of death and nothing can lead to death. Now, where, where are your heartaches and problems and difficulties? There are none. Be heaven. Jesus came to deal with those fundamental issues. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy 1, 10. The second point of connection is that some heartache, some heartache, relates to what I mentioned earlier. I'm just going to remind you of it. Some of our heartache relates to the fact that we have an ill-formed faith that has generated bad theology that has set up faulty expectations, and now our hope is shattered. We're, we're experiencing disappointment that we wouldn't experience if we were thinking scripturally. Some of our heartaches are along that line, similar to, similar to uh, these two disciples. They... they, they they, when they thought about the redemption of Israel, they thought about her political redemption. They weren't thinking about they themselves being rescued from sin and death. They had to have their expectations of redemption straightened out. Thirdly, the third point of connection is that God appoints suffering. You see this all throughout the Old and New Testament. God appoints Suffering, seasons of suffering as preparatory for seasons of blessing and joy. All of Scripture testifies to this reality, and of course it ultimately comes to fruition in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But just, just think, about, think about Israel. Israel suffering affliction in Egypt. And that generation of Israelites that ended up entering into the promised land, they grew up and came of age in the wilderness. Or think about King David. King David, before he ascended the throne, had to be on the run as an outlaw from wicked King Saul. And long after he had ascended the throne, the time came when he had to go on the run in order to protect himself against the conspiracy of his son, Absalom. Think about Daniel and his three friends being deported to Babylon and having to make life work in a foreign land. Or think about the Apostle Paul after the, after the Lord Jesus apprehended the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Jesus said to Ananias, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. As you read through the, the Psalms, David and the other psalmists, there's, there's so many expressions of heartache and grief. Remember the, the barren women 
throughout the Bible remember Elijah, who, who experienced depression after he had experienced a great victory. Remember John the Baptist, who toward the end of his life had his own doubting and sent two of his disciples to, some of his disciples to ask Jesus some questions. Remember Jeremiah and Job, who cursed the day of their birth. Remember Paul and, and Timothy, who were so stretched beyond their own resources that they despaired of life itself, as Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is, this is the Bible. Okay, Bible testifies to this reality of suffering and heartache and grief on so many different levels. And I wonder, I wonder if, you know, d- does, does someone come here on Sunday morning and you look around and you think, man, all these other people just seem to have everything figured out. They're just running on all cylinders all the time. They're just enjoying perfect repose in the promises of God. And there's me, and I'm falling apart. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that there's a lot of people who are on the cusp of falling apart at any given time. And I want you to notice something this is going to make a segue to the next application, but when we open up the scriptures, it needs to be clearly understood that the purpose of opening up the scriptures is not to put more information on the memory bank of your brain. That is not the purpose. Jesus ministered Old Testament messianic theology to struggling and suffering souls that they might be healed. And that's why we open up the scriptures so that the truth of God's word would cascade over struggling and suffering souls and bring about the renewal and hope and strength in the Lord. And it's not one and done. We need that over and over and over again to keep us on the way. And that leads me to the the second application. The path to spiritual health is through the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table, period. Let me just show you these, these two beautiful arcs in our passage, okay? Verse 17, end of verse 17. They, the two disciples, are looking sad. Okay, and then verse 32, their hearts are burning, indicating birthing of hope and joy. Okay, that's transformation. Now let me show you a second arc. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then the end of verse 31, or the beginning of verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Okay, from blindness to sight, from sadness to joy. And what is in between? What is in between is the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table. It is a great gift 
from Jesus that he ministered to them incognito. Because if he hadn't, and we were reading this, we'd be tempted to think, ooh, they, they had, a, they had a, a serious advantage. They were seeing him, and they recognized him, okay? And, and we, don't, we don't have that opportunity. It is not for us in this present age to see the Lord face to face. But we can receive the same ministry that they received. Namely, the opening up of the scriptures. The, the proclamation of Christ from the whole Bible. And I find it fascinating that the Lord's will was not for them to recognize him apart from the scriptures. The Lord's will was for them to recognize him through the scriptures. And that means we can immediately put ourselves in the same position they were in because we can hear and understand and receive those same scriptures and see the glory of Jesus shining off of the pages of the Bible as the Holy Spirit makes those words real and powerful to our hearts. But the ministry, of the, the, the ministry of the scriptures is not the only ministry that's in between their transformation from blindness to sight and from sadness to joy. The other ministry is the ministry of the table, right? He was at table with them and he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. The, the, the breaking of bread... Can, I think, can legitimately point in two directions. First, it can point to the symbolic meal that we regularly partake of, the, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, when the emblems of our Lord's sacrifice are presented to us for our remembering and for our being nourished and strengthened together as a church family. And so in, 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 that, in, that, in that case, you have the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table, the ministry of the scriptures and the ministry of sacrament, the ministry of ordered instruction and the ministry of the holy ordinances. And, 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 that's, and that's really helpful. And I think that the breaking of the bread does point to the Lord's Supper, but not only to the Lord's Supper. For this particular ordinary meal at the end of a long walk also points to the ordinary breaking of bread as we are gathered together for all kinds of meals in people's homes. The, 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 the Lord calls us to share what we have with one another, to, to, to enjoy meals together, to, in, to, to, to practice hospitality to one another, to open up our lives to one another. And the Lord is present with us spiritually as we do those things and so much good is done when we're, we're, we haven't only heard a sermon but now after word maybe literally after or maybe later in the week we're gathered together more informally to break bread with each other and minister to one another in all kinds of practical ways and I have to say that really what is described in verses 25 to 30 is the ministry of the church. It, 
Christ, the head of the church, is exampling it and setting the pat- pattern. But th- this, is, this, is, this is what we are commissioned and called to do. The ministry of the word and the ministry of table fellowship. Sound doctrine and relationships and fellowship with one another. Don't, don't, let, don't let anyone complicate what the ministry of the church is supposed to be. It's not complicated. It's very simple. The elders have had the opportunity to interview some people for membership recently, and I, I recall at least a couple people calling attention to the fact in terms of what they, what they experience and perceive here at South Paris Baptist Church is that, number one, there's faithful teaching, and number two, there's a compelling community of people. That's, that's, that's exactly right. It's, it's a community of people gathered together around Christ and His Word. That's what the church is. Brian over here, who, who, who testified to the fact that they're expecting a baby, he came up to me last night before the good, uh, on Friday night, he came up to me on Friday night before the Good Friday service, and he, and he prayed. And then he just testified of the fact that his life has been profoundly changed over the last year because of the Word of God. Because of the Word of God taught here, and also because of the, his own engagement with the Scriptures in his own private devotions. And he's burning within because of the ministry of the scriptures. And so let us never forget this, this, this simple pair of things that we are called to teach the word of God and then to embody that teaching practically in a fellowship of love. And as we do that, Jesus shines brightly and is present with us through his spirit to encourage us and strengthen us and keep us going. The final, uh, the final, uh, brief word of application I want to share with you is just the picture that is given to us at the end of this passage. As you have all of the the apostles and the larger group of disciples gathered together as a fellowship of resurrection joy. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to read some books by a theological scholar named Yaroslav Pelikan. Um, and, And some of his books really stoked my, my heart. But years later, I came across a quote from him, and he said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. You don't say that about, about most things. You only say that about something that is so central and decisive that if it happened, it changes everything, and if it didn't happen, then there's no hope. If Christ is not raised, we're still in our sins, the world is screwed up, there's no hope, we're going to die, and we're completely wasting our time. But if Christ is risen, and he's ascended to the Father, and he's poured out his Spirit, and he's building his church through us, then we are to not be a down-in-the-dumps down people, but rather experiencing the joy of his resurrection. Sin has been atoned for. Guilt has been removed. Death has been defeated. Hope for the future has been secured. We have a clear mission, which Jesus articulates 
in verses 46 and 47 of Luke chapter 24 when he said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. But this task of global proclamation, which includes local proclamation, is not, it's not a cakewalk. We are called into this pattern of suffering, sharing in the sufferings of Christ now, following him, knowing that one day we will share in his resurrection glory. And so in the midst of this suffering world, with affliction and persecution and opposition and weakness, we need the strength of his resurrection and the power of his Holy Spirit to sustain us as we walk this way and do his work. Let us pray. Father, I pray that your word would have its rightful place in our hearts. I pray that you would bring comfort, encouragement, strength, understanding for every heart here today. That you would continue to powerfully transform us and to lead us in your way. And we pray that the glory of the risen Christ would not only rest upon this congregation, but it would be known far and wide throughout the Oxford Hills and the state of Maine and even our whole country. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.